Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you take a look around the world, that when we mention the country called China, at this moment, that no one should be unfamiliar about this country. Considerably speaking, that China today is one of the largest economies in the world, but meanwhile, not only this fast development in economy, but also this geopolitical impact is also changing the world. However, recently, according to the political scientists and also some of the economists, China today is also facing some of the major crises internally. And how about the population decline? And according to the source, that population decline, especially among the younger generations, it's actually posing major threat not only to China, but also to the Communist Party. Now, realistically speaking, what about the vulnerability and the bigger picture for China? So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Professor Kent Dung. Now, Professor Kent Dung is a professor of economic history at the London School of, uh, of Economics and Political Science. Now, without further ado, Professor Kent Dung, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you so very much, Will. I will do my best. So, please fire me your question. <laughs> well, Professor, you are so modest. Now, again, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing interview that you did, and of course the article entitled, Decreasing Population May Weaken China's Party Rule. Now, let's get to the question right away. Professor, can you help us to understand what does that mean when you say, or when you mention that the population decline, it's actually hurting the China's party. Can you help us to understand a little bit more? Yeah, um, there are several aspects uh, in this regard. First of all, um, from the image of view, the Chinese authorities, the Communist Party, and also the government of the People's Republic, they always suggest we are the biggest uh, country in terms of population. Population is a resource, the economy resource. We have well-educated working force. So if you want anything, China will produce for you and cheaply. So that is the common understanding of the Chinese, if you like, comparative advantage. Yeah? Now, if you have the aging and also shrinking population, that resource advantage will disappear. In fact, we know this year, the total population of China is the second largest, not long, no longer the largest, the second largest on Earth. Mm. Who is the largest? India. Mm. India has surpassed China and become the superpower of democracy. What India offers to us? Cheap labor. Something China always boasts you know, to have. Mm. Now, China is no longer have that you like advantage or luxury. So this is a, a shock to the political leadership. Secondly, secondly, now in terms of tax, uh, uh, taxation, right? Mm -hmm. Chinese population support all the um, programs, including Belt and you know, Roads, 
are including internal infrastructure in also internal domestic housing market. All these things are related to the ability to pay. If you have a shrinking population, this will undermine the ability of raising money for you know both domestic and international projects of the government. So in a way, China is no longer as wealthy as before. Right. So this will be translated into some sort of a deficit to the government opinion. I mean, basically, they, they can no longer so confidently say we have X trillion of US dollars to invest because we have a huge amount of surpluses. We can tax all people. We can do this and that. Now, if you have a you know, sort of a declining population, that can no longer be true. Right? So in that regard, China is no longer as confident, as stable as before. Now, if you translate all this into the political legitimacy of China, so from the external point of view, if China is shrinking in terms of manpower, if China is shrinking in terms of ability of investing overseas, or, or if China is no longer as a, you know, the last resort of the investment as 10 years ago or in the past 10 years, so this will you know, basically undermine China's leadership's image internationally, but if domestically speaking, if you have a shrinking population, others will come to, you know, problems will come to exist. For example, for example, let's say, um, if Chinese populations start to shrink, yeah, immediately the surplus labor or the you know, advantage of cheap labor will no longer be with China, yeah? then this will mean that China's cheap exports will become more and more expensive. Then if so, inevitably, China will turn inwards. And uh, because exports are no longer so easy, so guaranteed, mm. so apparent, so creating jobs will become more and more difficult because remember, if you can export tons and tons of Chinese-made goods, creating jobs, creating jobs is easy yeah, because you have all homes you can basically write your own check. Now, if China's, you know, this comparative advantage uh, start to fade out, then creating jobs no longer very, very easily. So this will really uh, put this away. This will present to the Chinese authority a major challenge. Can you actually, with this shrinking population, with this you know, shortage you know, cheap labor, can you still create enough jobs for mm. So, you know, simple things like a population growth can do so much damage to China. 
and to the legitimate Chinese leadership. Now, put it that other way, after Deng Xiaoping, China's GDP, then you know, start a world almost miracle. And this actually is accompanied with Chinese total population growth. Yeah. Mm. So we have we have this correlation mm. between GDP growth and population growth. Mm. And this happened globally. Now guess what? In the past 10 years, as the Chinese population growth slows down, especially Chinese birth rates be, uh, begin to decline, GDP, GDP growth declines too. So either way, either GDP growth causes declining population or the, or the other way around, vice versa, but they move together. They indeed move together, right? So what we see already the negative impact on GDP growth speed now. Right? So the GDP growth now is halved in the past 10 years. Mm. And so is China's population birth rates. Mm. They go the same way. Mm. This happens uh, in, in Japan. In the Tiger economies, for example, in South Korea, in Taiwan, once you have population decline, you will have GDP growth slowing down. Mm. That's right, Professor. You know, one thing that also you mentioned, when people talk about China today, not only that people talk about this economic shift and also this political uh, 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 rivalries with other countries, particularly with the Western Hemisphere. But meanwhile, another phrase that we tend to uh, uh, use when we describe China, which is called the Communist Party. Now, let's talk about the stability of the Communist Party. Again, Professor, going back to a recent interview that you mentioned that who rules China? Again, that's a fundamental question. But you say it's not the party, but the army rules China. Now, for so long that we know that the Communist Party has dominated the entire country, or even this ideology, the communism ideology, has been dominating almost the half of the world, you know, until the Cold War, or, you know, it's rather controversial today. But what do you mean when you say the party is no longer in the driver's seats, but meanwhile the army? So again, let's talk about this. If the economy is the really the center of the whole conversation, how could that relate it to the army, not to the party? Can you help us to understand? Yeah. Um, from the principle of Chairman Mao Zedong, um, the party is the highest possible ruling body of the country. Mm. And the, the army should follow all the instructions of the party. But remember, if you have a you know a handful of you know, top bureaucrats and they are technocrats, right? Then you have a handful of you know, top brass of the army. If they do not agree with each other, do you think? The army will listen to the technocrats. I don't think so. Mm. So eventually, after 
the death of Mountain Dome. It's a very subtle change. The army often decides because army possesses that we are. They can actually forcefully uh, carry out certain, for example, opinions or certain policies. Um, Let's say that if the army decides, okay, we should you know, take Taiwan back mm. and how we do it. Yeah, they, can, they can lobby, they have resources, yeah, and also they have the discipline and they have real punch in the system. So Mao Zedong is right. The political power comes from the barrel of the gun. Right. If so, if the party does not have the power of a gun, the, the army will have the final say. Same as that. The same rule. The same rule. So if the, for example, the party leaders are at the same time top commanders of army, no problem at all. Mm. But if the leaders are now you know, technocrats, then the army apparently gradually Raves from the Mao's like principle. Mm. Yeah. So this happens also in the Soviet Union. Yeah. The, for example, Yeltsin. Remember, Yeltsin appealed to the uh, Soviet Army, the Red Army, that mm. I'm the president. You guys stop. Yeah. So at that moment, at that moment. It seems to me in Soviet Union, Yeltsin, the, the leader of the party, can make can basically make his final appeal and order. Can this be true today? We're not sure. We're not so sure. Because it depends. Yeah. President Putin hasn't been an armed man. Mm. So he is Technically speaking, he's a technocrat. Can the army chiefs really follow religiously his instructions? I'm not so sure. Mm. I'm not so sure. Mm. So, really, the first generation, not a problem. Stalin, no problem. Mm. And uh, the second generation, also Mao, the second generation, Deng Xiaoping, no problem. Deng Xiaoping run the army uh, himself. Third generation and fourth generation, you know, things start to change. Mm. Yeah. So that's why I said this. You know, the, the final decision depends on which one or which policy the army supports. Mm. Hmm. That kind of makes sense, Professor. Now, again, but when we talk about this current Communist Party under the current leader Xi Jinping. And we know that since Xi Jinping became the president of the country, number one, 
He is very famous for this anti-corruption campaign. You know, we have seen uh, within this party, one figure after another was charged because bribery, because the, uh, the financial mismanagement. So in other words, he created himself to become this significant, the significant figure that who resents towards corruption, towards political uh, uh, bribery or whatsoever. But meanwhile, that really could create another loophole for the party, especially in the economy as well. Again, let's go back to your uh, expertise. Is how do you think that today under this Communist Party or under Xi Jinping, people are becoming less and less royal to the party? So in other words, you know, the, the deal is if I'm not getting my proportion, if not, if not getting a cut for my side, why should I continue to be in this party? So in other words, don't you think that today's Chinese economy or today's Chinese political ruling are actually pulling people away from this party instead of drawing them closer to the leader? Mm. Good point. Uh, Anti-corruption uh, sort of campaign has been basically portrayed as the I'm seeing all units of the Chinese political, economic, and ideological problems. Yeah? And uh, it works in the first three to four years because, because it, it was new and people are waiting to see the results. Yeah? Xi Jinping and his leadership did deliver without doubt. Yeah? And we're talking about monthly you know, blacklist of people, uh, they were purged, they were put into jail, mm. and so, so they, they have their, you know, legal incomes uh, confiscated and so on and so forth, right? However, if you believe this campaign alone can also deliver other goodies to the general public, then you are wrong because in the past 10 years, China's, for example, Gini coefficient, which is the measure, reliable measure of inequality, mm. you know, that Gini coefficient has remained very, very high. How high? Higher than the United States. Right? So if, you know, let's say, uh, the anti-corruption campaign can deliver equality. People will be still so confidently supporting mm. the government or supporting the scheme to get rid of the corrupt officials. But it seems to us it's not delivering mm. public goods. You certainly get rid of bad potatoes in the official. But if this alone is not translated into benefits for ordinary citizens, right? Equally, anti-corruption against officials certainly has been taken effect. But other forms of corruption continues. For example, if you go to hospitals, and you have you know, clearly, you know, doctors 
trying to sell you drugs you know, and uh, all sorts of medical treatment, mm. not necessarily for your particular case, right? So that's a kind of a social level corruption. But this is not actually stopped. You know, it's getting worse and worse and worse, right? So people will have to you know, offer their pockets to pay huge medical bills. Mm. Right? Also, the universities, uh, and uh, you, 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 you have all sorts of ways of getting desirable grades. And, uh, for example, uh, you can certainly hire doctors. So that, that's not unheard of. And also professors will use research students, especially master and PhDs, mm. to produce for themselves. Mm. They're not you know, but they are equally corrupt. So, you know, corruption or anti-corruption campaign has turned out to be too narrow yeah, and not delivering enough benefits for the general public. So that's probably a short answer. Mm. Professor, I want to go back to the interview that also you mentioned. And by the way, if you can um, touch on this a little bit more, and that will be great. Based on the number, it says China currently today, if I'm not mistaken, has more than 260 million single adults. I mean, when you look at this number, I guess, you know, if we could use the word profound, and that might be exaggerated, but I think most of us will feel so astonished or stunning to see this number. Given this condition, there are 1.4 billion people living in this country, but 260 million are single adults. Professor, help us to understand, number one, how does this number could create major deficit for Chinese economy? And number two, what are the reasons for those people to be single? I mean, again, I understand everyone has different lifestyles, have different choices, but we can't say 260 million people are being single simply because only one or two reasons to be that way. So in other words, why do you think people are choosing to be single today? And also, how does that matter to the Chinese economy currently and also in the long run? Mm. When I you know, did research for, the, for the, the Tokyo group, I was surprised myself. Two reasons to explain why we have 200 million singletons in China. Um, one reason is the rural-urban divide. Yeah. So, urban people will have higher marriage rate. Mm. Rural people won't, simply because the rural economy is on its way to be faded out. So people do not feel any hope in certain rural regions. Therefore, uh, for young people to get married is not a good uh, prospect. Mm. You are better off to move to cities and marry a, a folk in, in, in the urban centers. You know? So that's the reason why in rural China, you know, marriage rate declines. You know? 
in urban centers, then you have a group of well-educated women. You know, they, they are certainly uh, easy to like. And they don't breathe in Chinese. They delay their marriages and they enjoy their middle-class existence. So marriages are no longer so appealing to them. So they decided to stay single. And plus, you have this horrific uh, gender imbalance or sex imbalance. How unbalanced the Chinese gender or sexes uh, between two sexes uh, for every 100 girls, you have probably 130, 130 boys, meaning 30% of boys would not get married in mm. their life. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. This has been the result of you know, one-child policy, simply because a lot of families legally or legally decide to have a boy. Yeah. On the two, three generations, you have that result. Terribly unbalanced. Yeah. So, even for you know free market marriage sort of a, you know, arrangements, a third of boys may never get married. That second uh, issue. Also, there's another issue which is divorce rate. Mm. We never heard of divorce until about 1990 ish. Mm. Now, divorce really becomes a institution. Why, in certain large cities, um, married couples will have one ticket to buy a property, mm. and for single persons, they will have also each will have a ticket to buy a property. Mm. So, if you want to buy a property free of tax. You do have this stamp duty. You are better off not to get married, or if you're already married, try to get divorced. Mm. Then you have this, you know, free stamp duty property purchase. So this is an institutionally kind of a created sort of a single term market. Right. So um, apparently, I heard the news today. After the COVID lockdown in Shanghai, people queue up in the court for divorce for divorces. Mm. And the queue is two months wait. Mm. So people decide, okay, well, for some reason, maybe COVID. And they get enough for each other of each other. So mm. it's decided to litigate. For them to to, um, to be single again. So, for all these reasons, yeah, uh, two hundred million people, uh, two hundred million people, singletons, will do nothing to contribute China's recovery of population mm. in the next ten years or twenty years. Professor uh, Deng, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, next question, let's go back to uh, 
this pandemic, again, that's something that you just briefly touch on. You're right. Recently, that not only the city of Shanghai, but also the capital city of Beijing just wrap up another major lockdown because of the pandemic. And we've seen and we've heard from the news that this is, number one, it came to China as a big surprise. So in other words, no one was ever expecting that this, I guess we could a second or the third phase of the pandemic could hit those major cities severely. Now, the next question to you is, again, going back to expertise, how do you think that this pandemic has influencing or has influenced Chinese economy. So in other words, how could you think that more countries today could trust China if China continue faces the economic deficit because of the existence of the pandemic? Yeah, um, this is a tough question. Pandemic in economics terms is called you know, external shock mm. to the production system. You don't want it, but someone imposed it yeah, uh, over your head. So that's exactly what happened. Now, let's say in major production centers such as Shanghai, if you close down for one day, you know, you're talking about you know, billions dollars of loss, you, you close it two months, then you're basically facing this enormous sort of a backlog of bill, you know, bills, orders, and you know, um, remember cities like Shanghai is already highly globalized. Mm. So you're in the middle, you're part of a global supply chain. So you decide unilaterally to withdraw from that global supply chain. And this is basically a disaster waiting to happen. Mm. So although people outside China will understand, yeah, you are in trouble, yeah? But, you know, this will cost them as well. Right. Remember, they are you know, on the same boat in the, in the production supply chain. Yeah? So very quickly, I think in the next three years, all the supply chain you know, outside China will try to move out to other places according to their performance mm. during the COVID. Yeah? Mm. So China's top-down, sort of a very strict, almost like draconian approach, mm. really doesn't agree with the market, especially doesn't agree with exports and imports, uh, that kind of open economy. Mm. It's okay if China is a closed economy, you don't really, you don't hurt other parties. But if you are open economy, you're part of a global chain, you know, we are here together. Yeah? So if China is down, the whole chain is down. You know? So people now are doing their sums to see how much damage now because of China. 
Mm. That's close to God. So I think you're absolutely right. China's reputation has been damaged. And China's position in the global supply chain, also China's reputation as the workshop of the world, has been severely weakened. Severely weakened. Mm. Because nobody can predict whether we have, you know, from now on, no COVID lockdown anymore. There's no law saying that. Yeah. And the leadership can change the mind very, very quickly. You know, so therefore, um, for whatever reasons, political reasons, ideological reasons, administrative reasons, China's lockdown unilaterally basically has broken the supply chain mm. globally. Yeah. So mm. I would say the damage is both inside inside China and also to other, you know, China, China's trading partners. Mm. Professor Deng, I want to wrap up our conversation with another major question. Again, this is something that you touched on during your interview as well. Let's talk about international talents. And we know that before the pandemic took place, China, especially the major cities, were the hotspots for international talents. And we can see that people across the globe travel to the cities, you know, either they, they would love to be entrepreneurs or they were uh, looking for business or opportunities or, you know, they have other major purposes as well. But right now, again, given this number that uh, just uh, recently came out, that more than 35% of the international talents left China already, you know, because the pandemic, because the uh, the economic deficit or any other reasons. Now, my question to you, it's not about why they're leaving. It's why do you think that China today is seem, especially the party holding this ideology or holding this uh, uh, belief that foreign immigrants are not going to stick around, especially the foreign immigrants are not going to abide the communist party rules. Now, Quickly help us to understand what happened to those people who are non-Chinese residents. And second thing is, what about China's policy towards those foreign immigrants? Is it good or is it bad for them to follow the party's rules or for them to create their brand new rules in order to stay stabilized in China? Mm, good question. Um, China's leadership always want to make China a welcoming place for foreigners, yeah, for political, technological uh, issues, financial issues for reasons. And in that regard, foreigners, especially Europeans and uh, you know, North Americans, have been traded well. Mm. Their salaries are higher than Chinese nationals. And also, uh, they have certain privileges. For example, they can actually, uh, they can Google, they can lock on all sorts of the Western media. So they create a different community, which much like pre-1949, we called foreign concession. Mm. Uh, the only difference between current China and old China is whether the foreign laws will apply. In old China, in foreign concessions such as China, uh, Shanghai and Guangzhou, 
foreign laws govern foreign, yeah? Chinese laws govern Chinese, yeah? So this is really a apartheid system mm. in like on a very small scale. But now, um, foreigners all of a sudden realize, although they are already treated better than Chinese, right? No doubt. But they are, their positions are undermined compared with pre-COVID privileges. Mm. Yeah. So their positions, their income, their freedom has been discounted. Yeah. Uh, in actual sense, although, although in relative sense, they are still better off than the Chinese national, their Chinese colleagues. Mm. Yeah. So this will actually persuade a lot of such international, you know, expats to, to, to leave China. They can go to Singapore, they can go to Vietnam, they can go to Cambodia, if, if they want, if they are truly international. Mm. So because they are already highly mobile, you know, the fact that they decide to stay in China for a couple of years or for five years or marry locals means they're quite flexible. Mm. They, they do not have to stay on indefinitely. So in that regard, I mean, they just, they easily, they can cross the strait and, and enter Taiwan. Yeah. Very, very easily. Because, you know, uh, in Taiwan, they have more compatible political system of democracy. Mm. Freedom of speech. Yeah. And uh, they don't have a, such, you know, sort of a very harsh lockdown policy. Yeah. So in, in that regard, it is an open competition global market. So uh, those foreigners should have such a freedom to choose. They are not fools. They know mm. exactly what they can get inside, also outside China. When they do the Psalms, they will decide. Mm. Well, Professor, that kind of makes sense. But again, right now, since the whole world is still trying to recover from the pandemic, and also that includes China as well, but I guess we can't really know how far uh, China can keep on walking in terms of this economic balance and also this politi political strategies. But meanwhile, as long as the world continues to run, China has to somehow follow the rules in order to be more innovative or in order to be uh, thinking outside the box. Kent Dung, and he's a professor of economic history at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and his research interest and writing includes the rise of literati in the economic life of pre-modern China and the maritime economic history of pre-modern China as well. Again, Professor Dung, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show, and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to watch and to monitor this economic crisis and the progress in China. Thank you, Professor.